0: Before we start the show, I wanted to say thanks for listening. We want to bring you the best show we can, and sometimes it takes us a week or two to cut, edit, and present you something polished. But if you're the kind of person who wants to hear the long version, with no frills, and wants it as soon as possible, we're now putting our Ready Player Two episode reviews on Patreon. Pay as much as you think is fair, and get access to uncut episodes just hours after we record it. Join our community of gunters at patreon.com forward slash get to the good part no spaces. Now, on to the show.
1: This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course you can find our social media pages where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now let's get to the good part.
0: Another thing I find interesting is that we can draw a lot of like relationships to the kinds of stuff happening today, or even with COVID over the past year, but we know that he's been, had been writing this book for some time we know that he had been writing as far back as when we met to at that book signing in Ohio. And there's particular mention about how you know the, the advantages of being in the oasis on the and I are huge. Like I'm convinced I'm convinced that, that Samantha's wrong, and I'm pretty sure it's because it's being written to convince me, right that I'm not seeing something that she's seeing, and maybe that's going to come out later. But at the moment, the arguments that Parzival are coming up with, uh, the fact that Samantha's grandmother got to live the, the remainder of her life outside of misery that her body was putting her through, the fact that population was going down because overpopulation was a huge deal, the, the consumption of resources was a big, still a big deal, uh, and the fact that Disease wasn't as easily or readily transmittable if you were interacting with people online.
1: Speaking of that part where they're talking about handshaking and how it went out of vogue and then went back in vogue, I felt like I was reading a page right out of the newspaper. I
0: know, like that—that that could have been something that that you'd read today, or or maybe a few months ago. But I, I wonder if there was anything that was retconned to be more relatable today. Or if, you know, in, in an Ernest Klein sort of way, he was kind of predicting the near future, much as he has with these two books, and just happened to nail it.
1: That whole paragraph, it was so interesting because he was talking about how the shaking of hands and how the O and I made it seem so real that it actually went back in vogue. Because when you did that, with regular haptics, it felt like you were shaking hands with a mannequin. And it's like, wow, you had such amazing technology, and now you're shitting all over it like it, like you didn't spend your most of your life immersed in it, thinking it was the greatest thing next to sliced bread.
0: Yeah, the hypocrisy that is being painted on Samantha, it's like a birthday cake with too much icing. It's more than apparent. Yes, we get it. Sweet stuff. I get it. You know, yes, we get it. She's being hypocritical. And it, again, I feel like... It, it might be setting us up for an awakening down the road wherein she goes, haha, you're right, or, or, and I have been kind of tossing this around in my mind in this chapter, trying to set up a reasoning for Samantha to become the antagonist of this story. Ooh. Because right now she's at odds with everyone. She has a very strong belief against this technology. She very much doesn't think it should be in people's lives I feel like there's reasoning that she's not necessarily nailing down very well, or maybe she's holding back on, and she does have access to the company.
1: Both sides of the argument about the O&I have very valid points. I'll tell you, I go back and forth, like, would I have released it? Would I not have? Mm-hmm. And, you know, she makes a, a lot of valid points, and then you hear, you know, Age and Shoto and Parzival all going to bat for... Go O and I, go O and I. And makes sense. Like it's like, yeah, that's great. You know, her grandmother got to not be in pain for twelve hours a day and experience life in a much more palatable fashion because of it.
0: Or not to convince people of the kinds of things other people go through, to increase sympathy and cross cultural experiences. Yeah. That gives people a degree of understanding and patience in other people. And reduce uh, prejudice, which is how Samantha's been using it, actually.
1: Yeah. Her foundation has been using the ONI to have people live in someone else's shoes. And like, yeah. there are practical applications to the ONI. But I mean, I do understand where she's coming from in that people are going to spend too much time living in this fabricated reality and continue to forget the actual reality. And, and I know that goes into a whole discussion of what is reality. It just feels like it was, it's a very complicated issue that I, I think the more and more I'm learning about it, I, I think I'm just getting to a point where like, I, do, I still don't know what I would have done, what I have voted to like say, yes, let's release it or no, not.
0: I think that the concern here is the same kind of concern that any software developer has, and that's independencies. If you have a dependency, and I don't mean dependency as an addiction. I mean dependency as in if I'm reliant on you for data. Like I create a website, and it's a weather website, but I don't own the weather data. You do. It can be the best weather website in the world. It can be the most useful. It might even save lives. Like we can predict tornadoes. We can contact people to get them out of their homes. The best weather website Ever. But if I rely on you for the data, then the minute I can't rely on you anymore is the minute all of that goes away, and people who are reliant on the service I provide don't know what to do without it. And I feel like that's the OASIS. The OASIS is wonderful. It has so many graces, does so many wonderful things. But everyone in the OASIS is reliant on the single dependency that is GSS. And the minute that goes away, the world won't know how to survive. Even if reality sucks, even if reality still encourages prejudice, disease, overpopulation, at least every person is independent or not as dependent on a single system to support everything in their life. And I wonder if that's not the crux of what we're going to go into, the the proof that, that Samantha is right in the end.
1: We will see. <laughs> oh, you asshole. <laughs>
0: Still, hey. keep, keep picking to see if I can't get a response. That kind of takes us around the parking lot of this chapter. We do have the arguments between Parzival and Samantha. All we're really doing there is drilling into the fact that he has some growing to do. She is being as stubborn as ever about what she believes. And it really just accentuates... The strain on his friendship with uh, Shoto and H.
1: You had to feel bad for him between having to schedule things weeks in advance and then also just kind of feeling like they hung out with him. He said this specifically with regards to H out of some sort of obligation that-
0: Or feeling sorry for him maybe or
1: something.
0: yeah. Yeah, like that's shitty.
1: That sucks.
0: And even though the conversation towards the end, after Samantha left, snapped her fingers, and poof, disappeared. You know, the conversation where, like, hey, I just finished this thing, you want to come play? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Like, There was at least a hint or a glimmer of the kinds of conversations that they would have, and that there was some enthusiasm for them to hang out. But the fact that he has this paranoia, that even his friends are starting to turn on him or dismiss him, really just puts him in that place of being alone.
1: When they were talking about going to the basement, I was like,
0: yes, let's go to the basement! Not this chapter.
1: Not this chapter, but man, I was like, all right, the basement! Those kinds of scenes in the first book were always fun and...
0: They were full of, like, sporty dialogue, right? The kinds of dialogue you had with your closest friends at a bar or in someone's basement. You know, the kinds of playful banter that were teasing, joshing, and yet at the same time sort of pseudo-serious. Yeah, that that's the kind of shit that builds camaraderie. And you can tell just through the writing that part of Parzival misses that. Uh and, and you kind of wonder at this point in the book if the narration for Parzival as the protagonist isn't some degree of regret for having won the Oasis.
1: I mean, that's kind of what I keep thinking at after this chapter is would he have just been happier if He didn't win, and he was just a regular guy who got to roam the Oasis. And
0: I think wouldn't he have been happier if no one had won? Because if somebody had won, his meaning in life would have disintegrated. He would have no longer been a gunter.
1: That's really the point. He needed that for purpose. So it's quite possible that if someone else won the contest other than him, that his life would have had no purpose again, and he could have gone into Equally as bad a depression, but no means. Right. Which is tough. Yeah. Now he can afford a real therapist if he wanted to, but he uses a virtual one, which I'm sure isn't free either. Like, he can try to find solace in something, even if it doesn't work. Like, he's not worried about his survival.
0: Yeah, exactly. He's, he's not what you would call hungry. Which is kind of a rocky reference. You got to stay hungry, and how do you?
1: He's got his omelet and hash browns.
0: Yeah, well, that's just it. His drive. He he's not uncomfortable enough to drive him to do what needs to happen. And I think that's that's kind of the point of elaborating the luxury that he currently lives in. Is that before his drive was to get out of the van you know, that was buried under a bunch of cars to get out of his aunt's trailer park in the sky. It was, it was to, to get off of the dryer. And so long as he was uncomfortable, that was his drive. Now that he's not uncomfortable, you know, where's the drive? Again, he's got the cheat codes and no drive at all to be creative. So it feels like for him to really start this race again, He's going to have to fall, and he's going to have to fall hard. Uh, I don't know how that's going to happen, but it, it feels like uh, like something's got to happen to kick him out of his position of comfort and bring him to a place where he's once again struggling at the bottom of the pile, and that's where his brilliance will shine. I have to imagine. I'm hoping.
1: Yeah, no, I I think uh, you have some very interesting thoughts there that we can not or can comment on
0: (laughs) all right is there anything else you think that we need to cover did we miss anything in particular that you want to uh, touch on
1: i mean i had a bunch of notes here so e earth ersatz earth i had to look up what ersatz was
0: and what did you find because i i do remember seeing that
1: ersatz is an adjective meaning serving as a substitute synthetic artificial
0: Oh, how cool. And that, that goes into explaining the the different simulations of cities in the Oasis. Exactly.
1: It was interesting to read the part where both H and Shoto legally change their names to their avatar names. We learn about the Ravatars, which is the real-life avatar that is based on your eye scan, which I'm still not quite sure how your brain scan is going to then populate what your body looks like, except that maybe it's based on what your mental image of yourself is.
0: Right now, we're inside a computer program.
1: Is it really so hard to believe? Your clothes are different, the plugs in your arms and head are gone. Your hair has changed. Your appearance now is what we call residual self-image. It is the mental projection of your digital self.
0: I could see that.
1: We learn that H has a fiance. Right named Indira Vinayak, who was a famous singer and Bollywood star. Like we always do, I try to deep dive into a lot of things. So I look into the name, you know, Indira Vinayak. And Indira, which is, I guess, an alternate spelling of Indira, is a Hindu or Sanskrit Indian popular feminine given name, which, which means beauty and splendid. Vinayak from the Urban Dictionary, is a name often given to an intelligent male and, on occasion, female Indians. Intelligence isn't their only area of strength, however. They can adapt to any situation they're put in and have skills in any and every area.
0: So, beautiful and smart, with a certain degree of of androgyny mix-up there. Okay, that's creative and kind of expected. Like, the name itself really probably describes... H's partner as much as it needs to if you dive into it. So that, that makes sense.
1: Vinayaka, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing this, but is another name for Ganesha or Ganesh or mm-hmm. the one of the best known worship deities. Deities, yeah. right. So.
0: Yeah, so beautiful and a goddess. Yeah. That's fantastic.
1: I like digging into this stuff because Ernest Klein had to pick this name. Right. So,
0: he did it with reason, and the name describes the person. Yeah, you, you get that. So, yeah, that's a good catch.
1: Then, of course, I look into Shoto Marries a Woman Named Kiki. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing about this study, the Booba Kiki study. And they had a, a shape that was like round and amorphous, and another shape that was like pointed, starry-looking. And they said, which one's the Booba, which one's the Kiki?
0: Oh, the Booba's the round one, the Kiki's the spiky one.
1: Yeah. That's the first thing that came to mind was the, the Buba Kiki study.
0: Gotcha. I know nothing about that study, by the way. But that's what I imagined.
1: Yeah. But then I found that Kiki in Japanese means crisis.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Okay. It's also I'm, a
1: slang word for a social gathering, usually for the purpose of casually kicking back, gossiping, and sharing stories.
0: Yeah. There's, there's a song.
1: Let's have a Kiki. I want to have a Kiki. Lock the door. right. Let's have a Kiki. God, have have a really? I've not, not heard this. this?
0: Oh, no. Yes, that's, that's a thing. Interesting. I'm not 100% sure why I know that, but I, I totally know that. And that's initially what I was thinking when I heard that. So I, I also do kind of wonder if maybe that name either either means, you know, somebody who's lax and, and kicks back and, and whatnot, or, but I mean, you dug in and it means crisis. So that's kind of a real sort of contrast. I'm curious to see how that plays out, if that plays out at all. That may not even have, I'm not even sure if that would have relevance beyond just naming a person.
1: It may be nothing, but just figured I'd do what we do. Mm-hmm. And Totally, totally. Kind of moving on through the chapter, the parts about dealing with IOI and the lawsuits were very interesting. It was kind of wild to think of IOI being able to successfully argue that Sorrento went rogue and did that all on his own. That seems like a real stretch.
0: That sounds like a, a business trying to separate themselves from a liability. Oh, I, I'm right? sure,
1: yes. But but they were apparently successful in doing that, which seems unlikely. It would have been very hard for him to pull that off going rogue, I think. But that, that's just me.
0: Right. I thought the part that, that, that I thought was clever with that whole description about the lawsuit was the idea that He was an indentured servant or masking as an indentured servant who had signed on the dotted line that anything he did was owned by IOI and thus IOI owned GSS as a result.
1: I thought that was very clever. Yeah. And kudos to them for thinking about that. But I'm not quite done yet on this first part.
0: Oh, oh, okay.
1: So they tried to argue that he went rogue and they, they knew nothing about what he was doing. But they knew... That he blew up the trailer park.
0: Well, we know they knew.
1: No, no, no. We know we know because <laughs> the session with Wade and Sorrento was recorded and given to the media where Wade says, I'm sure they're listening to us right now. He says, hi, guys. What do you say? They know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We know that they know. They know that we know that they know that we know.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it again, this isn't surprising, you know. Shit goes to, to hell in a handbasket, and um, it's like anything. We're, we're, I'll give you an example. Do you remember last year or the year before when Boeing had airplane issues?
1: Yeah, still do, sort of. like the, yeah. well, the, well, the fallout from it is still around, yeah.
0: Fallout is still around. I mean, there's, there's that and the fact that people stopped buying the plane, and then, of course, COVID set in and purchases for more planes due to a lack of travel went down as well. But what did they do? they went up they went up and fired the ceo did they need to fire the ceo was he a horribly bad person i don't think so i think mean, he was in a position where he had to answer obviously for these but, issues but they got to look businesses- like they're doing something Businesses, that's how businesses work. The board basically says we need to sacrifice somebody to satisfy the, the problems that people have and show them that we're doing something different. So they take you know the CEO, they kick his ass out, they put somebody else in, and they go, see, we are changed. It wasn't us, it was him. He'll take the blame for this, and we'll kick him out the door. It's a bit like taking all of the disease within a business, infecting one person, and kicking them out of the hospital.
1: Kind of, yeah.
0: Yeah. So this doesn't really surprise me. I kind of thought that, yeah, this makes sense totally.
1: But for the board to say we didn't know any of this and then to have a recording exist where it's like, oh, they were were consulted. They knew about this.
0: Yeah, but there's no way to prove that. You can't prove it. You can't prove it.
1: (laughs) Maybe. So anyway, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Like you said, trying to say, oh, well, he, he was our property and he signed a contract. Whichever lawyer came up with that one, very clever.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's pretty brilliant, actually. I I, I really didn't see that coming at all.
1: After they took over, and then they basically cleaned house of anybody that they got rid of the board of directors, the attorneys, and everyone else that worked under Sorrento.
0: Or above, it would seem.
1: That, to me, felt a lot like him zeroing out his detractors. Sure, I get that. Which I get, which I get, but man. But I mean, Uh, you know, the
0: the business that's suing you, you take over them, you get rid of everybody, and then you say, I think I'm going to stop suing myself now. That made sense. Yeah.
1: A few other references that I thought were kind of interesting. GSS was christened the New Sixers, which I thought was a little bit of an over-exaggeration. The part that I thought was interesting was the remaining members of the High Five were being called the four nerds of the apocalypse. So that's... Obviously, a reference to the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which everybody right. kind of knows about. But I looked around and there is actually a book. I think it's like a little short, like Kindle single short story called The Four Nerds of the Apocalypse. And oh, yeah. It was published, I think, in 2015. And the author is William Raced, uh, which is the pen name of a writer from Columbus, Ohio named William Stackpole, huh. uh, who makes a living writing practical nonfiction for the banking industry. Pursu- this pursuit stokes the-, the fires of his creative interest and drives him to create poetry and fiction. Sounds a lot like Ernest Cline.
0: Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's somebody who knows that some good research right there comes from the same town.
1: And it fits,
0: and it fits, like it fits the story. Like I didn't even look twice about that. I didn't even think that was a reference or that it was a reference, but that it was like a biblical reference, not a reference to an actual book. So kudos. Now I'm going to have to read that.
1: We will post the link in our show notes to the four nerds of the apocalypse, which see if I can read a description here. Carmine started his day as an ordinary teenager. By evening, he and his three closest friends were battling space monsters and keeping the world from the brink of destruction, and he had a girlfriend. That's a full day for any nerd just in town for a comic convention. Four Nerds of the Apocalypse is a short story about friends, fanboys, and the fate of the world. Fanboys! There you it's, go. It's 26 pages and it costs 99 cents.
0: Wow, okay. Might have to check that out. Sounds like a short read.
1: Published July
0: 2015. Yeah. All right. I'll have to check that out. What else did you find?
1: What else did I find? I think I also want to like give some kudos to Samantha slash Artemis for celebrating her birthmark more and making it her trademark. He described it as an internationally recognized trademark. I mean, like, good for her for that. Because for something that she was so... Embarrassed by and ashamed of for her entire life to just own it, yeah, just like fuck, yeah, fucking own it, yeah, you know?
0: and not just and not just own it, become a trademark, yeah. Uh, and we talked about that earlier on how when we're talking about the growth of all the characters, even Samantha's grown, even Samantha's gone, uh, kind of come out of her being her being ashamed of that and turning it into something that is a a recognized and and, and brand worthy. Sort of icon that she was able to leverage that and turn it into something that was nearly marketable, but you know universally recognized as being unique to her, which is really just cool. And, and there are a lot of famous folks who have done exactly that, either through the clothing that they wear or the hairstyle that they've got. Something about them that is personally branding. And, and frankly, for anyone that's listening, you know if you want to up your resume game the ability to find a way to brand yourself, to speak publicly about what you do, and to have a website that kind of speaks to you. It could be a blog, something, if it's technical, whatnot. Branding yourself is a strong means of upping your resume game when you're looking for a job in the market. This being an example of that.
1: So yeah. Go, Samantha. The other thing that I, I, because we like talking about the quantity of data they added another million yottabytes to their data storage, mm. which is a lot of data.
0: It is. It's a. It's an obscene... It's a lot. It's almost like... I mean, a yottabyte is an actual very specific amount of data, but it's just like we need a big number. Say a million yottabytes. That'll be a big fucking number.
1: I had a little fun with this, and I hope I did my math right. So... The, the other big chunk of data size that we talked about in the, with regards to this uh, franchise of books was the amount of data that Parzival stole from IOI and then uploaded at the plug, which was 10 zettabytes, right? So 1 million yottabytes is 102 million times the amount of data that he uploaded to the plug.
0: It's got to be more than that. Because how many yottabytes are in a zettabyte?
1: One thousand twenty-four zettabytes in a yottabyte. Okay. So I, it's possible I missed a decimal point, but it's an insane amount of data.
0: Yeah, it's, it would be like a thousand zettabytes times. You said was a thousand zettabytes in one yottabyte, and then a million yottabytes. So it's like a million times a thousand. It's insane. It's just a big number. You see, after a while, you're just throwing zeros at the damn thing, right? You're just—it's like saying a million, bazillion, one
1: billion, million, million. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's just such a big number. You're like, fuck it. Don't know how big that is, but I get it. They're telling me it's large.
1: And then he's like, "Yeah, this should hold us off for at least a year." <laughs> <laughs> what? Which,
0: uh, that kind of makes sense in, in the sense that what we're really trying to elaborate on is how much data is being procured from people's minds. And, and I can't stress this enough in business where you're working with data. Personal identifiable information, be it medical, be it identity such as like your picture, your name. Hell, at this level, we're talking about what's on your mind literally, is big and it's incredibly powerful. That's incredibly sensitive data to have to deal with. And this is a bit like recording and storing a movie in six dimensions. You know, so much rich information, such high fidelity information over a long period of time being stored. Yeah, it doesn't it's saying it it's a ton of ton of data that we now can for storage and that'll last us a year because we're procuring so much personal data it's frightening to even think about that from a business perspective yeah technology
1: that's a shit ton of data
0: it's not even so much as a shit ton of data it's a shit ton of personal data highly personal data it's a lot and it's you know i get it i get what they're trying to communicate there it's kind of wild really in itself but I, I get what they're trying to communicate
1: so other things that i noted there was the vote that Samantha wanted to create an age limit for the use of the ONI. She wanted it to be 25, but said she would compromise with 18, and of course it failed. And she had, she had a good argument, but, you know, it didn't go through.
0: Okay. Well, and I think that speaks to that sort of nanny protective limitation. that That's a bit like the government stepping in and saying, here's a regulation. Uh, or Or, for example, the government stepping in and saying, you've got to put— a label on CDs or cassette tapes where it has you know cursing or adult content, explicit lyrics. And the fact of the matter is that when you do that, you start to target and, and exclude races and, and different economic interests or economic divides within a culture just by doing something like that. So this idea of putting an age limit on it, while I understand the argument. it it kind of didn't have a whole lot of proof. Like there was no, she wasn't coming to say, we have evidence that our equipment is harming people under the age of 25. Her argument was people's brains are forming. People are using the device while their brains are forming. Therefore, we should assume that it's harmful. And that's not good logic.
1: It would have made some sense if she said, can we... Do a study and analyze these people's brain scans to see if something's going on, so we can decide if this is something we need to limit.
0: Yeah, it's not like you wouldn't be able to tell. Yeah, you have everyone's brain data.
1: They've given it to you for free.
0: The guinea pigs that they are. So, so yeah, it was just it's it's kind of one of those those typical. I'm I'm trying to create an argument to to er, her concern. Isn't to protect people's developing brains. Yeah, her concern is to limit the use of the O.N.I. and preferably yeah, per- eliminate it. And this is an argument; it's a side angle; it's it's a vector of attack to, to 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 reduce usage of the device that she hates.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, is that because she's the messenger of that "quote unquote" warning about mm-hmm. it, it was never going to happen. <laughs> she didn't know her audience when she made this proposal. <laughs>
0: Maybe they should have just acquiesced and put a sticker on the device. Maybe, maybe, maybe harmful to your health if you're under Explicit the age of
1: twenty-five. Explicit brain scans. <laughs> Parental advisory. Now, so I'll try to run through a few more of the things that I found in this chapter that I either liked or thought were interesting or hurtful. Like, you don't get to call me Artie anymore. Ouch. That had to hurt. Fine, Sam. Uh, yeah. And then the line about how Ogden was against the O&I and she said, what a huge disappointment we must be to him. Yeah. That's manipulative.
0: That's, a, that's making a lot of presumptions that that's just emotional manipulation right there. It's just sure. like somebody saying you know, I can't believe you're eating hot dogs. Your parents must be so disappointed in the choices you've made. Like you don't fucking know. You don't know. Don't speak for somebody else with the hopes that you're going to manipulate my feelings about the subject. Uh, This is one of the reasons why it's kind of like already comes up short Yeah. in her discussions, in her beliefs, and how she's pushing them. It's little things like this that are just really reek of logical fallacies.
1: Yeah, she just needs to do better about understanding how her audience perceives her and forming her argument to that group. But anyway, moving on.
0: She's like the lawyer that keeps saying, objection, your honor. Yeah. <laughs> just just to fucking say it at this point, not even with a reason, really. Objection, your honor, hearsay. Uh, no, I'll let it pass. With
1: what? So there was that part where they were talking about, oh, here's all the benefits of the O&I, here's all the empathy and all this stuff. And yeah, she goes, oh, please, spare me your transhumanist hive mind bullshit locutus. I'm still not buying it. I like that because of the reference to Locutus. Do you know that reference?
0: Yes, that's a Star Trek. Yes, that's that's Picard when he got taken and turned into Borg.
1: I am Locutus of Borg. Resistance is futile. Your life as it has been is over. From this time forward... You will service us. In some ways, it's, a, it, it's it's an apt reference because you know resistance is futile. Who can resist the O and I? Yeah. They're saying ninety-five percent of uh, Oasis users use the O and I. Yeah,
0: yeah, and that's again, that's that's a, a poor argument. That's trying to draw a comparison to something that's negative to a technology here. That's that's just not, again, great logic. Like you can sit back and go, these people aren't a part of a hive mind. They're individuals experiencing a reality. It isn't a fake reality. It's an alternate reality. And all you're saying is is that you only accept one of two realities when you have people that accept both. It's it's different than the hive mind wherein everybody loses their identity, where nobody has a name. You know, Lucutus was an exception because he was being used as a communicator. Everyone else was given an identifier, like seven of nine, right? That you lost your identity and became part of the collective. That's not what's happening here. That's not that's not an apt comparison. So, it, yeah, again, it's just it's just crap logic. It's again, it's just a poor argument.
1: What can you do? One part that came up that I think we had talked about at some point. Was that the I has helped lower the global birth rate and the overpopulation thing. Like, I think we had talked about— We
0: did. We touched on that.
1: Not so much in this chapter, but I think previously about are people going to kind of fade away into this thing and stop procreating? Well,
0: we talked about that just a little while ago in regards to um, the, the fact that you had uh, a population density issue, population control issue, and that it was beginning to reduce that.
1: Yeah, uh, but, but I think we had talked about it prior to this chapter as a possible problem from using it.
0: Yes, this is true. And in fact, that actually, while that was an argument that was being used in this chapter, which was that it was reducing the population, Japan has a unique situation wherein for several generations people had stopped having children because they didn't see the point. And now they were turning around and pushing procreation. Actual procreation, which is why Shoto's having a child. I mean, it's not completely why, but it, it was part of the description as to why, why he did, why he did have a child. Because he had mentioned that, that you know it's kind of part of the effort.
1: Having a child. I don't think the, the kid's not born yet. His wife is pregnant. I don't think they've had the kid yet. They just know it's a boy.
0: Da, little Daito is what they're going to call him, right?
1: Yeah, correct. Well, right. it, Toshiro, he confided in Parzival that he's going to call him Little Daito.
0: Little Daito, right, right, right.
1: And like he changed his name to Shoto, why not just name the kid Daito?
0: Yeah, that kind of crossed my mind as well. Just but, saying. Uh, could be that the wife didn't want that.
1: Um yeah, you gotta listen to the wife.
0: There you go. So uh but but that he was kind of part of that, that effort to sort of help to repopulate to add youth to the population in Japan.
1: Someone's gotta clean up your mess later.
0: Well, and moreover, though, a lack of balance in population for, for any country, for any society, is a problem. Too many people can be a problem, too few, or, or too few of a range. If, if everyone is elderly, then, then more people are dying. There's a definite decline, and then there's a definite end, you know, where the society will collapse. And there has to be a balance to, to have a, a sustained society. So, you know, while there was the argument that overall it was reducing population, here off to the side, we have this argument where, you know, for Japan to say, you know, to sustain itself in the future, it needs to have people breeding. I've heard
1: I mean, it's a smallish country, certainly compared to the United States. So, yeah, like, uh, if they uh, lose 10%, 20% of their population, that's a big deal for them. When you're that small... You Everybody's got to chip in a little more. Yeah, sure. And that was pretty much kind of all I think I could pull out of this chapter. Some interesting well, things.
0: We hit the high points. We hit the we hit the concern points, the red flags from uh, the broad sweeps. And um, and I, I, my first read of this chapter was again somewhat uh, sad or depressing. My second read is where the red flag started to come up. And I started to get really concerned about what was being written into this chapter. What is Klein trying to impress upon us through this narrative at this point? And, you know, and then, of course, trying to figure out, okay, how's that going to play into the future? And you already know that future. I don't know that future yet.
1: No, you don't. (laughs) Anyway.
0: Anyway. All right, with all that said, we will get back to you with the next chapter. This is Chris.
1: And this is Aaron.
0: Thank you for listening. We'll catch you then.
1: See you.